Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Nina Burley, welcome back to Prevail. Thank you, Greg Oliar. Good to be here. Um, we've got a lot to talk about. I want principally to discuss the piece that you just wrote, which is called Sons of Anarchy. You wrote this for Airmail Weekly, and it's about basically the, the, the plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. And it's really a horrifying kind of, the whole thing is, is horrifying. And it, as you say in the piece, it's sort of a prologue or, or, or a, um, a foreshadowing of what happens next with the insurrection. I think it's, you know, kind of like Jan Hus and uh, Wycliffe were, were the, the, the forebearers before Martin Luther came along. I think that that's, that's what these guys are. So before we started, right before we taped, you said, oh, really, we should get this down. And you talked about the idea of menace and law enforcement. So why don't we, why don't we start right with that. So tell me again what you were just saying so people know. Yeah. So the Michigan governor kidnapping plot is just an extreme example, extreme risible and sinister example of, and risible because it didn't end in bloodshed, um, example of a, uh, I guess, a style in American politics or in American political discourse that is becoming the norm in the post-Trump era, uh, temporarily post-Trump, hopefully permanently. Um, And that is menace as a way to control politics. Menace as a way to control the elected officials or people running for office who were speaking out from the center left or even the center or even from the Republican side, but not agreeing with the Trump Republican fanatics. Um, and by menace, I mean like death threats. And, you know, my story is just a microscope taken to this one particular case, but there have been in the last week articles by Reuters. Reuters went and did a big dive into nine in- incidents of death threats that were directed towards elected officials. And and by elected, I mean, not, you know, somebody is uh, 
obscure as you know a um, a superintendent of of school or a, or a vote you know somebody who's in charge of voting machines um, in you know in a, in a small county, and the examples that the Reuters investigative team pulled up are all cases in which the police haven't done a thing, where in people have. Um, you know, in Arizona and in Utah and out west and in the Midwest have have made open threats to elected local officials um, to the tune of things like, I know where you live. I know where your children go to school. You better be careful. I know where you sleep. You, you know, these these types of, I, you know, I'm going to see you hang. I'm going to see you hanged. These types of threats that are not being reacted to by law enforcement. And in the cases that the Reuters team looked at, uh, the reason, I guess, was that the law enforcement response was, well, we, don't, we can't find them, or you know, we don't have any evidence of this. And the team, the Reuters investigative team, went and found these people with ease, and they were proud of what they had said in public, the death threats that they had delivered in public. You know, similarly, the Times did a piece last week. Um, menace is the new norm in American politics. And, you know, they listed off a bunch of examples, again, that I'm not was not familiar with. These things do, are not rising up to the level of where we're seeing them on Twitter all the time or we're seeing them in big in big coverage on, you know, in the big newspapers or the big websites. Uh, but there are things like, you know, in Montana, some guy gets up at a rally for one of the extremists, uh, extremists running for Congress and says, well, when are we going to be able to use our guns to shoot Democrats? And, you know, the whole the whole hall roared in, in approval. And that's just one example. I mean, it's happening all the time, every day, and law enforcement is not doing anything about it. There, when I was working on this article, I thought, um, to look into whether or not Michigan has a law that says you can't make death threats to public officials. Because one of the things these guys did was before they actually went underground with this plot, they were quite open on social media about how much they hated her, how much they hated the tyrant bitch and many other names that we won't repeat here. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of sexualized, fantasies and uh of, of harming her um lots of things were being said and the fbi was watching this the whole time they were on these guys as they've been on them from march forward march of 2020 forward so they were quite aware of the way they were talking and the lawyers for the for these defendants are saying well it was just their first amendment right they can say these things it's ugly talk. One of the lawyers I talked to, it's ugly talk. I call it ugly talk, but it's it's protected by the First Amendment. But actually, it isn't protected by the First Amendment. You can't make threats of bodily harm to people. It's against the law to do that. And, you know, that's why you get uh, restraining orders. Um, you know, you can get law enforcement involved when that happens, but they just start jumping in. I thought I thought it was assault. I thought that assault and battery meant, I thought assault 
was the threat and battery was the physical act of the threat. But I don't know, I'm not a lawyer and I might have been remembering it wrong from years ago, but yet there does seem to be this rise of certainly uh, menacing people going to school board meetings lately, dressed up in their bullshit idiot regalia uh, to try to, you know, to try to terrorize people. And I think it, it goes part and parcel with law enforcement, police officers in general being outfitted by military gear that the military is trying to unload. And then when law enforcement looks at a neighborhood or a community as like they're invading Fallujah or something, rather than them being part of that community, then you have a problem. There's a disconnect and the, and the capacity and the chance of violence is so much greater. And, and law enforcement is a, is a, a big, uh, I think, through line in your story also, because, um, and we'll get to it, what, when the people went to the state house in Michigan with their guns, they were let in and the cops didn't do anything about it. And everybody was like, what the actual F is going on here? How can that happen? And you say in the story, well, you know, it can happen because it's it's legal to bring a gun into the state house. It's not legal to bring a sign that says something bad, which strikes me as just preposterous. I mean, Second Amendment is OK, but 20, not the first. In 20, that's true in 20 states, at yeah. least 20 states, Texas, for sure. Um, 20 states allow people to come into the state capitol building with weapons, loaded weapons, and some are allowing concealed weapons to be brought in. And yet, if you walk in there with a sign stating your opinion, you can be arrested and, and are arrested. So, uh, but what you just said about the law enforcement, you know, the, the, the uh, militarized suits that they wear and so on, you're getting at it, but it's, there's a little bit more to it that, that, that what's going on here is these guys, these mil militia members in Michigan are members of a, what I would call a subculture of gun love. And they all are almost all of them had jobs as security guards or at gun ranges. One of them was a safety officer at a gun range. The FBI informant, the guy who who ended up wearing the wire and and handing over all their encrypted chats to the FBI in real time, uh, was an Iraq war vet uh, who was looking for he's part of this gun subculture. He's a two a pro two a libertarian is how he describes himself. And he went on Facebook looking for guys to train with like he'd been out of the military for all he's he's wounded uh veteran and he was looking for guys to train with he felt like he was losing his training so facebook's algorithm pushed him towards this group that's how he found them facebook's algorithm recognizing that he was interested in second amendment rights pushed them pushed him towards this extreme little corner where this guy had, you know, Joe Morrison had set up this militia after being pulled over and or actually not even pulled over. The cops saw him sitting on the side of the road in a disabled vehicle and they found an unregistered weapon in his car. He's a gun lover and they put him in jail for a night um, that enraged him so that he started the Wolverine Watchmen, which is this little club of men who, again, Facebook delivered a lot of their members and the other members they picked up by going to the state capitol 
um, anti-lockdown rallies and pro-2A rallies, and they, they brought more members in that way. But the gun subculture is the issue here. They are enabled and they're enabled and protected by these people who are, and by the way, the documents, I looked at hundreds of pages of court documents. I looked at the transcribed um, encrypted chats. There are people walking around in Michigan, a real estate agent, Lansing, girlfriends of these guys who were really involved all the way down the line. They just weren't in, you know, they're not deemed to be, you know, engaged in the plot the way they, the others were, but they were at the trainings. You know, the trainings were, I mean, literally it's like something not, as you said earlier, it's Thomas Pynchon crossed with Carl Hyacin. Like it's utter paranoia crossed with these most ridiculous kinds of combinations of, of things like they're smoking. A lot of them are smoking weed and in their field training exercise, they're, they're getting high and they're, you know, at the same time practicing shooting their AR-15s at cutouts of cops and the governor. So they're high and they're using these weapons in their backyards. Meanwhile, their women folk are on a field, one field over practicing knife and ax throwing because they're part of the club too. They're the auxiliary, also smoking weed. So some of them, not all of them. So, you know, this little subculture that, you know, the gun, the gun loving subculture is a, is a factor in this, in that a lot of the members came from that background as, you know, as I said, the, the veteran, the Iraq war veteran, Dan, whose name we don't, we don't say his last name because he's in hiding now. Um, he was delivered to them by Facebook's algorithm. And after two or three days of interacting with them, I mean, they, because they fetishized the military, when they met this guy, they were like, oh, my God, we've got, you know, a real veteran here. And they, many of them had washed out of the military. They had made it through basic training or they were in, only in the reserves. So that this guy who had actually been wounded in Iraq was among them, just gave them, you know, no end of thrills and chills. So he was invited in right away and he was there for three days and he started to realize, whoa, they're talking about shooting cops and they want to kill people in law enforcement. And that doesn't strike him as patriotic fun with guns. So he goes off, talks to a, a police officer, friend of his in Flint, Michigan, and that police officer called the FBI and the FBI then called Dan and brought and called him into their offices in this is in March of 2020. And they said, um, would you help us? Would you wear a wire? Um, you know, we think these guys are dangerous. And he says, yes, I think they're dangerous too, but I don't know if I want to wear a wire. He's not unlike the informants that the FBI used through the war on terror years when they were really entrapping and rounding up hapless Muslims that they were in recruiting, they were sending informants out to recruit and arm people at, at mosques. Um, unlike those types of informants who usually are criminals working off a, um, a, a charge, this guy wasn't that. He wasn't a professional informant. He wasn't getting paid to do it. And he was very reluctant to do it. He was worried about his child, um, as you would be if you're going to go in there and wear a wire. And in fact, they were the, the Wolverine watchmen were so paranoid about the feds after the first couple of months when they realized, you know, this is real. We, we're really going to go get the governor. They started taking themselves off social media and, and moving from encrypted platform to encrypted platform, trying to get away from any kind of surveillance. 
uh, unwittingly inviting in and having amongst them this their hero who turned out to be wearing the wire the whole time. What I found interesting about this cast of characters, because it starts off, as you said, by this guy, Morrison, who is pulled over, spends the night in jail, and he's just enraged. And um, there's pictures of these dudes on, on, on the website, which are which are worth looking at, because, again, Risible is, is the name. I mean, these, these guys are, they're losers by any metric available, right? And it's interesting to me that the only person in that entire group that actually was in the military is the one that was like, whoa, fuck this noise. I can't do this. I'm going to have to turn these guys in who did his, you know, Frank, who did his job and good on him. Good on you, Dan, if you're listening. Um, but yeah. the, the rest of these guys are just a bunch of jokers. And I think the name of the outfit, the Wolverine Watchmen. I mean, that's two superhero things like mashed together, right? You have Wolverine right. from the X-Men and then you have the Watchmen, you know, from the Watchmen and, and, and they've mashed this right. together. And it seems to me these guys are all, they're like children. They're like boys that never quite grew up or they never got to a certain level of maturity. And the only difference now is that because they're grownups and they have these rights, they can go and get guns and shoot guns and do this and that. But they're still they're they're boys. They don't have any kind of, uh, you know, maturity that allows them to be functional members of society, because a lot of them, as you said, they, they couldn't get through basic training. Um, they, you know, some of them couldn't hold jobs very well. One guy's living in a, the guy that they think is this great genius is li living in a basement of like a, like a vacuum store, which is like a scene yeah. from Breaking Bad, right? It's. <laughs> yeah, I went down there. I went down, I descended into the lair. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, that was quite a trip. I mean, that, that, the voyage into uh, that part of Michigan was, you know, I grew up a few counties over like spent my childhood actually in the woods out there in, in a few counties over from where these guys were doing their basic training or their field training exercises, they called it. And uh, I, you know, I recognize the type, like I recognize that there are people who would love and protect baby squirrels and yet also love guns and, 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 you know, really want to shoot a cop. Like I can understand that, you know, I've, I've met that type, not necessarily want to shoot a cop, but that love guns, but also love to protect a baby squirrel that they found as grandpa Pete Musico, one of the older guys of the group uh, had in his, uh, in his bedroom next to his dummy grenade and um, his weapons, the little baby squirrels that he had rec uh, re re rescued from a fallen tree. But that's but, a know, child thing not, too, you know, right? That that's it a is thing. a child thing, but it's also it's also you know like a it's a country boy thing, and and you know I don't I don't think that that's that unusual. I mean, you're calling it a maturity thing. I would call it more of a of a kind of a hedonistic, consumerist attitude towards freedom. I mean, they were obsessed with freedom. They were obsessed with liberty, 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 liberty. You see it all over their their memes and their. Um, their, you know, we, their freedom was being taken away. And the f what freedoms are they talking about? You know, okay, so first of all, obviously, it's the guns. Don't you dare take my guns away. Don't take my guns away. And some of them had, um, you know, uh, criminal records. So they really were in danger of getting them taken away if the laws were tightened on that issue, right? So they were worried about the guns. But it's not just that. They're worried about 
you know, being pulled over because they didn't hadn't paid their auto insurance or, you know, how dare a cop pull me over because I, you know, made a right turn without putting my signal on, you know, the freedoms are personal freedoms, the freedom to go to the gym, the freedom to, to, um, you know, carry your gun into a pizza place um, and buy a pizza. You know, the, these are, these are like individual, it, this sense of restriction, I guess, is what I think really links them together. This re, re, real simmering anger about other types of restrictions that then were provoked to the boiling point by the uh, lockdown. Because the lockdown was, of course, the, and, and, you know, the other reason that they're so obsessed with freedom and they fetishize it is that they, they live in this, this, these misinformation silos or these right wing, you know, news silos where they've been taught, warned for years that the, to, that the left is a totality, setting up a totalitarian dictatorship imminently. Your rights are about to be taken away. And now, of course, that, talk has bled straight into Fox News. So you've got people like Tucker Carlson saying it and Laura Ingraham saying it. So they had these they had this obsession with with freedom and the lockdown on March 17th or when Whitmer said everybody's got to stay home. Well first she said no more gyms, no more restaurants and then it was stay home for a while. And you know the COVID was was surging. They regarded that as the sign that they had been warned about that they were going to be taken off straight off to FEMA camps and have their guns taken away because they've been warned because the right, the extreme right has been feeding this notion, this paranoia into the stream of information that these guys were accessing. So they are a direct result of this type of misinformation, disinformation, propaganda campaign in addition to the fact that, you know, the state of Michigan has these very lax gun laws and and then the pandemic, which, you know, everybody experienced it differently. These guys experienced the lockdown as, oh, my God, China, we were, you know, Governor Whitmer is like the is like G, you know, and, and, and we're going to it's China and we're going to be you know, we're going to be locked up imminently. And our guns are going to be taken away. So there was real panic. You can see the real panic in their in their conversations. They lived in this bubble. They they um, they communicate with each other on um, on these issues, and they you know they they decided that you know she was the tyrant bitch. I don't think that it's. I mean, yes, it's immaturity, but that's not very specific to them. I think there are a lot of men in America who will who agree with them, who have the same sentiments. You know, the thing about Michigan is there's a lot of back country where you can play army in the woods. We used to play army in the woods when we were kids. You know, ex-FBI agent that I talked to about this said, yeah, they're like, they're, you know, what you were saying, they're, they're like kids who are playing army. Yeah, I, there's a lot to unpack here. And I think immaturity, meaning, you know, just boys need their toys. But I think there's also... There's a there's a lot there about loss of power, I think loss of personal power and loss of power, you know, writ large in, in, in many different ways, if you're these guys. And again, I don't want to overgeneralize each person that participates in something like this as an individual that has his own reasons for doing so or her, because we I want to talk about the women in a minute, too. But I think 
you know, part of it is loss of power. They're afraid that somebody's going to come take their gun. Like, what kind of force would be powerful enough to go through the entire country and take everyone's guns away? Like, what do they? Th I mean, you know, the logistics of that are impossible. It's never going to happen. But they feel like if they don't have those guns, that's really all they have that's preventing them from, you know, I guess awakening to their lives or, you know, being better people. I don't know. Um, maybe going well, to the military and and uh, you know being able to get through it. I, I don't know. But there's also well, the NRA. I mean, the NRA has been feeding them that notion forever. Yeah. You know, that's it, it's mainstreamed now that sure. that you know you're, you're you're they're coming to get your guns. They're coming to get your guns, and that's why after Obama got elected, you know, the loss of power issue, uh, there was a huge um, surge in gun buying, as mm -hmm. we know, because. Yeah. First of all, they were warned that the, here's this black president, he's going to take your guns away, and then brown people are going to come get your stuff. And that notion provoked another militia at the same time, uh, or sorry, right after Obama got elected in Michigan, that, that was, um, they were plotting to, to uh, kill cops and, and they, got, <laughs> they got caught um, before they did anything, but they were, they were you know, they, were, they thought that like, communists what there were some russian tanks at a at a at a um, northern michigan army base and they thought those russian tanks were were a sign that you know the russians were on their way into michigan um i mean stuff like that you know just misinformation credulity and a uh you know exacerbated by the enormous number of fake information sites um that are really set up to by the Republicans or their their enablers in the donor class to um, to provoke these emotions that go along with seeing somebody who doesn't who isn't supposed to be in power in their view in power. So in the state of Michigan, you had three women. You still do three women at the top of the government, like a Nordic country. I was going to say that too. It's Whitmer and it's Nestle and the secretary of state, whose name I'm blanking on. So three women at the very tippy top of the government. And these guys can't stand it. It's like, it was like, you know, seeing the brown man be in the White House. That just drove people nuts. We didn't understand that. You know, th those of us who don't feel that way thought it was great or, or thought it was just fine and, you know, thought Obama did an okay job. But, you know, that whole time people were seething because there was this image of somebody who wasn't supposed to be in power in power. So in the state of Michigan, part of the problem there was these guys responding to the female in the in the role of governor, the female face of the lockdown, the tyrant bitch. And, you know, they just couldn't stand it. And uh, Attorney General Nessel told me that um, the state of Michigan, you know, all of the women in elected office there, and this was months ago, so I'm sure it's even worse now. Um, the women have, um, they, they routinely, judges too, female judges, they routinely field death threats and really nasty menace. And this has been going on for a year or more than a year, you know, and they are, because she's the attorney general, their office handles this. And she herself, the attorney general, was subject to um, so many threats, serious threats during the lockdown that she thought about resigning because she, when she was in lockdown, like everyone else, you know, these state officials are in their own houses and how many cops can be parked outside of your house night yeah. and day when you have children in your house and you're getting threatened by people 
people like this who are going to come and, you know, saying they're going to come and kill you, execute you for treason, so on. She literally thought about quitting her job. This is the attorney general of the state of Michigan. And, you know, it doesn't rise to the level of a kidnapping plot, but it was exactly the same motive. It's responding to a female. They didn't go after male governors. They thought they some of them talked about it because they brought in at the end, they were bringing in people from out of state. They kind of coalesced with other right wing extremist groups or boogaloo dudes. And they um, those out of staters, they were they, they made a decision like, well, could, should we do Ralph Northam? Because they hated, you know, Virginia governor. So, well, let's do him. No, no, let's just do Whitmer. You know, that's that's who they focused on. And it had a lot to do with women power and how upsetting that is to some people again loss of it comes back to loss of power that's another way writ large the the power they could they perceive power as being lost it's not only that they're not in power and that the government in some shadowy way is going to come take their guns it's now it's not even a dude you know it's a woman in power and my god how can we have that you know how can something like that happen and it it speaks to something that's happening now culturally i mean men are Josh Hawley, the senator, talked about it, Nina, the other day. I mean, you know, men are under assault. Oh, I missed he that. Said. What did he say? Um, oh, he he wants to he make masculinity. Uh, he he said a lot of cuckoo things. He wants to make masculinity a big topic. Jo- Josh Hawley does. Uber Uberman, you know, Josh Hawley. Because when you think Little macho man. man, you think first Josh Hawley, then The Rock, and then maybe somebody else, right? Um, but one of the one of the factoids that he was trotting out in in the <laughs> speech of his is that the um, you know, fewer men are going to college now than were before. You know, there's, there's a more percentage of women and, and soon it's going to be a lot more so that, you know, down the line, you know, there's almost this sense of obsolescence. I think if you're these guys, you can feel this sense of obsolescence, which, you know, Samuel Johnson said in what, 1620 or whatever it was, nature has given women so much power that the law cannot afford to give them any more. So see, he knew what was what was up. Uh, <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah. Well, it isn't it because you know once the takeover happens, mm-hmm. we're, we men are done. We all know this. You know, the, even these guys in the Michigan woods know that the, you know it, that it's over. So, yeah. um, but no, I, I I'm joking. Yeah, but, but that's so in. far in that's so far in the future, Greg. Alas, yes. Um, you know, uh, but there is, I think, with guys like this, this sense of desperation because a lot of their obviously their identities are wrapped up in that they're masculine guys even the way that you described how those camps functioned they were gender they were separated by gender you had the women in one you know on one field and the men in the other field and the men had the guns and the women had the knives you know i guess do they have different strains of weed i don't know but there was you know there's a separation there uh, along the sort of traditional gender role traditional gender role lines that um you know culturally as god intended as god intended greg as God intended. The women also were nurses. They were nurses. Some of them were actually nurses. Like right. they actually work in hospitals. Um, oh and God. they were, uh, when they got, when the men got serious about the um, kidnapping plot, they stopped inviting women. They stopped inviting wives and girlfriends. Mm-hmm. That was no longer a part of their deal. And the, the wives and girlfriends, the, the wife of the um, founder of the um, watchman, uh, at their last meeting said, um, uh, since it's like, like, likely that you all will, will get injured in this ex, uh, you know, uh, 
effort. Um, we women, we women should start studying nursing and how to, how to treat gunshot wounds. And that person is still, um, free, never charged. So one of the women, the, uh, Adam Fox's girlfriend, um, also never charged walking free in the state of Michigan is, um, on tape twice saying, I really want to know what it feels like to shoot someone in the head. Well, you know, that's just ugly talk. Nina. That's all that is it's just ugly talk. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it sounds like they were enabling them and kind of, you know, urging them forward in a, in a way, in not a very nice way. Of course. One more thing while we're on this topic, the, specifically the plot to, to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. You know, she's a woman. She's also an attractive woman. And I think that matters on some to some degree. I think with these guys, it matters. It, it we have a, a tendency in our society, I think, to to sexualize, uh, you know, w- women, especially. Um, and and the perception is if somebody's very attractive, that they can't also be smart and competent and this and that. And it's something that that I think women have to overcome or, or reconcile with in order to be successful. And she's managed to do that. Um, and that I would I would guess that on some subconscious level fuels how much they hate her. Yeah, the, the looks thing probably is, um, you know, I mean, but they also would hate, you know, a, they would hate an Angela Merkel, too, I think. But they might not have the same True. They might not have yeah. the same fantasy of hog tying her and laying her on a table and, and live streaming. it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that's what I'm getting yeah. at. I mean, it's. Yeah. It's just vile, um, the whole thing. So fortunately, Dan, our serviceman here, our our wounded vet, blew the whistle on these guys. And not only blew the whistle on them, but stayed with them and was an informant for the FBI the entire time. And when they got arrested, he got arrested also to make it look like he was in on it. Yeah. And I guess what happened then he just left. He got he got witness protection or what happened? Well, I don't know where he is right now. I mean, I, I have. I mean, some, we don't want to. Yeah. No, I'm not going to out where he is. I mean, I don't I don't actually. No, know. no, no. Um, I, I know that from the court records that they gave him a little bit of money. Fifty fifty grand total is what he got. And um, part of it was to to make up for the loss because he had to sell his house after this so that he could hide. Mm. And he's in hiding with his family. And he's going to have to testify. And, you know, what one other thing that we haven't talked about here is this whole idea of, um, you know, the defense attorneys have to argue entrapment. They don't have anything else because everything is recorded and there's transcripts of these guys saying what they were going to do. Right. In addition to Dan's testimony in his, you know, they've got recordings and they've got transcripts of encrypted chats. So. The, in, the attorneys in this interim period between the charging, which came about in October of 2020, and then they had some more hearings in early 21, uh, up till now, have been basically pretty silent. Um, but into that void have come journalists, and they talk to the defense attorneys, and the defense attorneys are feeding them, because there are thousands and thousands of thousands of hours of recordings, the defense attorneys did not get, you know, the the prosecution didn't put all every single word that they recorded into these documents. So some of the defense attorneys, for example, Adam Fox, who's like the leader at the end was the leader of the whole thing. The guy who lived in the vac shack basement, his lawyer spent the summer listening to audio 
that, you know, because they got it from the government. He, and it was like looking for a needle in a haystack, but they were looking for examples of Dan not behaving like he was supposed to and behaving more like he was aiding and abetting and pushing them towards the, um, mm. the crime. So what happened was that kind of storyline uh, BuzzFeed did a big piece. They got a lot of documents showing that there were more FBI agents running around the periphery of this group than is commonly was commonly known. So they put that into a big story and they advanced this notion of entrapment. And what you have is, and then of course, Glenn Greenwald has picked it up. Um, what you have is people like now Tucker Carlson picking up on this idea of, well, look at the deep state was in there in Michigan and they created the plot. They, they entrapped these gun loving patriots and look what they've done. And this is exactly what happened in one six. So they're taking the entrapment defense from the Michigan case and applying it into the one six, you know, their, their bullshit theory that the government was, you know, had sent in um, provocateurs to get them in trouble and, and break down the, the doors and beat the cops, right? So in this other way, this is another way that this case is, you know, it's a microcosmic uh, or prologue to the one six because the fantasy of, of arresting and killing uh, political leaders, the uh, enactment of an, an, of, a, of an assault on a, on a government building and then this, you know, excuse that, well, the, you know, it, they were entrapped. They really weren't uh, doing anything wrong. They were just talking ugly talk is very similar in both in, in both cases. And that's something that they're they're running with. But I don't think, given what I know about this case, that they're going to win. I've been told uh, by FBI agents who were who worked undercover in cases like this other in other states that it's very difficult to to win an entrapment case and you can see that with those muslim terrorism cases that were brought in new jersey and, and places like that in the in the oos and the teens um where they just have ridiculously uh recruited these guys from again the mosques and around the mosques and armed them and had the informant feed them a plot and in this case, that's not what was going on. You can see from the records that they were talking about, they were obsessed with Gretchen Whitmer's vacation home starting very early on in May because the Daily Mail, again, here you have the right-wing media. I was going to say, yeah. The right-wing media echo chamber. Mm -hmm. The Daily Mail on May 26th posted a story about her vacation home and a dock worker, a Republican or pro-Trump dock worker up there who had put up a Facebook post saying, you know, Governor Whitmer's husband called and asked me to take his boat out of dry dock this weekend. And that means that she's she's defying her own stay at home orders. And in fact, the stay at home orders were no longer enforced by Memorial Day, but that was picked up by the Daily Mail. They put a picture of her vacation home in the story. And that afternoon, the um, one of the founders of the Wolverine Watchmen posted a real estate listing with the exact coordinates of where she lived or where she vacations. And from then on, they were obsessed with going up there because it, it looks like a soft target. I mean, it, it, gen it genuinely is a soft target. It's out in the woods. 
you know, on a lake, on a dark, you know, pine shrouded upper Michigan lake. And, and uh, they imagined that it would be easy for them to, to, to grab her there, that they're, that they're, you know, that they would kill the security detail, bust in, um, decide on the spot whether to, or not to kill the family members. I mean, literally they talked about this and then they would, they would drag her out and either put her on their painted black boat and float her across the little lake to their cars or take her over to Lake Michigan and put her in a boat without an engine out in the middle of the uh, lake and walk away, leave her out there floating or take her all the way to Wisconsin and then have a, a trial in which she was tried for treason and then execute her in Wisconsin. Again, all of it public, you know, live streamed. And they, they got, you know, they got a ways down the road with surveilling her house. They went up there twice in two cars each time. They, you know, at night, they drove past the house at night several times to see if they could see the lights on the other side of the lake. Their other part, the other part of their team, they made a map of the lake and the boat ramps and the second time they went up, they decided, you know, this is a remote um, cabin, but there is a Michigan State Police um, headquarters within 20 miles on a highway. So they decided they were going to have to blow up the bridge that connected that highway, major highway, to this little hamlet. And in order to do that, they needed explosives. And that's when the FBI stepped in and offered, they sent an undercover in and said, you know, he can, he can, this guy can sell you the um, C4 that you need and, and other gear. And they uh, got it, five of them got in a car and drove to this meeting point in a, in a warehouse and run down auto parts factory town that no longer makes auto parts, Ypsilanti, and they got arrested. And then th those people in the car who went to buy the explosives were arrested on the spot. And then the other eight were um, arrested that same night in their homes. And the state charged ones are in, most of them are bailed out in their homes, uh, disarmed. And the federally charged six who really have big, big charges against them are in, they're not bailed out. They're in federal prison. One of the federally charged the airline mechanic who knew how to make ghost guns, airline mechanic who worked at the airport in Detroit, by the way, with airplanes. Um, oh God, he has pled. He has pled guilty and has agreed to cooperate and testify against his comrades. So they gave him six years, um, and that's very short, given that it's going to be 20, 20 to life for the rest of them. So that guy's lawyer who I've interviewed um, is on the record saying this is, this was a real plot. This wasn't just something that the government came in and fed these guys. And when the trials start, that narrative that has been seized by the defense attorneys and people like Glenn Greenwald, Tucker Carlson, and so on is not going to hold up because they are going to show what you can easily see. If you read all the documents that these guys were having these conversations and already were, heavily armed. That's the other thing. They were not armed by the government, which is what the FBI was doing with these, these Muslim entrapment cases. They were, they were, they had armories. I mean, Ty Garbin, the, the um, airline mechanic is, uh, had a gun safe with, I don't know, 10 semi-automatic weapons in his prefab, very spick and span 
subdivision, actually. See, the other myth about all this is that these guys are all rabble. You know, you see the pictures and some of them actually do look that way, but others were not. You know, there's a real estate agent in Lansing who's all over the wreck, all over these documents, telling them how to evade the feds and so on. He's still a real estate agent in Lansing right now. <laughs> this whole thing is, it's really horrifying. And yeah, no, if you're, if you're advanced enough in the plot that you're going to go buy explosives to blow up a fucking bridge, that's not, you don't get back from that. You know, this, she's lucky that this didn't come to pass that they, they could have well very easily have happened and it would have been just yes horror movie level awful if they didn't have dan in there how far would they have gone down the path i mean the defense attorneys are going to argue that they wouldn't have gotten that far i don't think the record shows that he was pushing them towards it they engaged with each other they engaged with larger groups of people who were more even more committed than they were eventually um to plot this it is true that the FBI had alerted the governor's security team weeks before they arrested them that this was something that was going on and to be out, out on the lookout for them because they were, they were driving around her house in the dark, you know, in a, in a very uh, remote part of Michigan. It's unconscionable that the Daily Mail would, would print that with her address in it. I mean, Tucker Carlson was recording his stupid fucking show in a remote location in Maine. You could figure out where it was if you went looking, but nobody published it. Right. You know, nobody right. publishes where Brett Kavanaugh's fucking house is in Chevy Chase. You got to, you can right. find it, but it's not published. And they don't make it easy for you. It's right. only the, you know, only the right wing media does shit like that. It's really disgusting. Right. But, you know, disgusting. that's a disgusting publication run by disgusting people. So that's right. You know. And, you know, there's a great picture circulating on Twitter of the editor, the Daily Mail editor with his hands all over Ghislaine Maxwell at some party. Mm -hmm. And it's out there today because of course she's going on trial very soon, but yeah, that's who they're, uh, that's how they operate. And um, they are not responsible. Let's just say that they're not responsible. No, no, they're, it's disgusting. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Nina Burley. I've got more questions for you. Okay. We're back with Nina Burley. I want to talk about Ghislaine. We started this real quick. Now you're 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 a producer of the documentary, right? What is the documentary yeah. called that you're you're uh, producing? Epstein's Ghost, Ghislaine Maxwell, and it's it's streaming on Peacock in the U.S. and Sky News in Europe. Um, it's a three part doc, and it's been out since May. Uh, we may be making a fourth um, episode because she's going on trial starting December 1st, and the trial is looking like it's going to be pretty interesting because the judge recently refused to redact a lot of the names and acts that they are trying to keep out of the public record. And of course, you know, the redactions and the, the promise of confidentiality has always been what this woman and the, these people, you know, Epstein and the rest of them depended upon. The names have been redacted from the documents, but they may now be, we may see more names or more garish acts by Ghislaine Maxwell that have been kept redacted in, in the documents uh, that have been released so far. It is a, uh, that's one thing that we're going to look for. And the other thing will probably be that they uh, really drill down hard on Andrew. And uh, that's, you know, of more interest personally it's more i think it's more interest to the the british 
that, that you know, but they've got they've got Clinton palling around with her. That's in the documents, I think, um, certainly in the flight logs. And, and, you know, what we did with the documentary was, you know, there were already was a big documentary on the victims and what, you know, their side of the story was. That was the big Netflix story, uh, doc. Right. What we were trying to do was look at the why of this, not the what. We know what they were doing. We know that they were bringing in underage girls and grooming them, grooming them, uh, literally what well, I think Epstein was basically just the male body that they were training these 14 year olds on, get them used to it so that then they could send them off to other men who were more powerful and who they needed to have influence over. And they would have video. They had video cameras in every room and every uh, one of the mansions and the, you know, the Island and the, the um, ranch out in New Mexico, everything was recorded. And I think that it was a blackmail factory. I don't have an influence operation of some kind. We yeah. have people saying that we have a lot of evidence pointing to it, but um, is, is that ever going to be provable? I don't know if they, that is not the goal of this trial. You know, that's the problem. Like you'll get, the, you'll get the, you'll get the woman who was, you know, his social networker and the woman who was procuring these girls but what you don't what you're not going to understand from the trial i don't think is why they were doing it the true scope of it is not about jeffrey epstein's carnal desires he's a block of ice yeah there's something else was going on that's an interesting uh theory actually and it makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense i mean clearly these guys are working with intelligence agencies all over the place and the fact that Ghislaine is where she is and there's so much uh, mystery around what's happening also seems to suggest that, yeah, she she's connected to somebody on some level that, that's yeah. protecting her, including the, you know, the royal family. The royal family, but of course her father, you know, it's the family business. I mean, the father was yeah. was a triple spy. I mean, he was he was not only was he a criminal who absconded with hundreds of millions of pension money um, from the uh, British paper that he owned, but he spent most of his life doing kind of gopher work between the KGB, the Mossad, the CIA. I mean, he was this go, he was the go between and he would bring, and he, yeah. he, he, he literally brought to the Soviets uh, American technology that precedes all of the you know the the nsa stuff that we have now in the 80s it was called promise and it was like a um mm -hmm. a network um where they could um track it was it was meant to be for law enforcement where you could track a lot of people and and um and track what they were doing and and their crimes and their alleged crimes and their cases and they they gave this technology to the israelis who the sorry the Americans get got it to the Israelis, who then got it to the KGB through their connection to the KGB being Mr. Robert Maxwell, and this technology because it was coming from the CIA and was well known to the CIA that this was going to happen, had a backdoor trapdoor in it or a backdoor where the government of the United States could actually watch what the KGB was doing with it. And, and Robert Maxwell was the middleman on that. He was also the middleman heavily involved in the Iran-Contra um, stuff. He was bagman. 
Yeah. So that's her dad. Her dad could her dad could cross borders anytime, anywhere between Soviet Union and Israel and and the UK. And he was very useful to a lot of people. And he 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 played his role um, as a as a super spy, as one of the books about him says. So she's just daddy's little girl, you know, and he's he may have introduced her to Epstein. Epstein certainly entered. Uh, he was in the UK in the 80s, and he certainly knew Maxwell. He certainly was involved in gun, big, big, big arms um, deals, uh, scandalously gigantic arms deals between the UK and the Saudis. Uh, Epstein was up in that. So, you know, it's just this, I mean, you've talked to people about him. I think you've talked to people about this. But yeah, sure. It's, you know, it's, I'm not telling, I, I don't think I'm telling people lot of what they don't know. But I don't think that that's going to come out during the trial. I think there might be some deal where they maybe get Andrew out of her because for some reason they're obsessed with getting Andrew here, the, the Justice Department, but they're not really getting, they're not re- getting to the bottom of why somebody like Leon Black would fork over $150 million to this guy who has absolutely no Wall Street training or skills uh, other than having been involved in a pyramid scheme that sent his partnered to jail for 20 years. He was untouched because he was obviously right. doing what the FBI needed him to do or telling them things that they needed to know. Um, so I think we'll, we'll learn maybe some new names and I do think that she'll get, I think she'll get, a, get convicted. I don't think she's going to be free from prison for a long time. I think 10 years or something. Good. Be what happens. Yeah. Good. You know, yeah, the Andrew stuff is interesting. I, I was I was talking to Arthur Snell, um, who's a British diplomat, um, was now he is a podcast and he's at Orbis Intelligence with Chris Steele. And I asked him about Andrew and do you think, you know, are we going to get him here? What's going on with that? And one of the things he said is that it's it it's widely reported. I mean, who knows if it's true, but the Queen prefers Andrew. That's her favorite. And, you know, uh, but Charles does not. Charles thinks that. Andrew is kind of an embarrassment and my God, how could he have done this horrible thing? And, uh, you know, at some point, Charles is going to be king and the queen's protection is going to end. I don't know when, maybe sometime in 2050, I suppose she'll, she'll go that long, but um, nothing would surprise me. So I don't know what's going to happen with Andrew. Maybe it matters. Maybe it doesn't. The important thing is that Ghislaine goes to prison. I think that would be a really great thing for, for uh, justice, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's justice for these girls. Um, but again, I think, you know, it would be great if they pressed her to explain what they were doing and why. And um, I don't know if that's ever going to come out. You know, I yeah. just I, I mean, it's it's a um, because it it's you know, it's an influence operation. I mean, they were they were aiming at certain types of people and the Andrew connection, one of my sources told me that Epstein at one point bragged that Andrew, Andrew's role was as a UK trade representative. That was his job, right? If, you, if he can be said to have a job. Mm-hmm. And, and because of that job, if he was on Epstein's plane, Epstein's plane could land at any potentate's backyard and Africa or, you know, and he would be in the back room while they were having these, these um, diplomatic meetings, he could be in the back room arranging for, you know, dictatorial loot to be cached away. He bragged about this. Mm. And I think 
I mean, this, this source, you know, maybe embellished a little bit, but it is true that if you have Andrew on your private jet or you have Bill Clinton on your private jet, you can land in a lot of places that people can't usually put their planes. For example, when Bill Clinton was on his jet, he was landing in, um, uh, you know, military bases in Japan, his private jet. Mm. So those connections are, um, you know, they 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 were they were using he was using them or somebody was using them for something, and and I don't think those questions are going to be answered in the in the trial. Yeah, this is this this is the sort of thing that's going to take years to unravel I, I, if it ever gets unraveled. Um, okay, so the the documentary is called Epstein's Ghost, right? Do I have it right? Yeah, Epstein's Ghost, Ghislaine Maxwell. Oh, Epstein's Shadow. Sorry, Epstein's Shadow. Okay, it's Epstein's Shadow. Wait, in, I'm going to say it again. One, wait, wait. In in one country in the. <laughs> so the documentary is called Epstein's Shadow, Ghislaine Maxwell. Uh, Although you know what I it's it has two names. It's okay. called Epstein's Ghost in one country and Epstein's Shadow in this country. I mean, in one country. So let me just Epstein's Shadow, Ghislaine Maxwell. Okay, that's the one that's on. That's the one that's on Peacock, and then the article about um, yes, the article about Epstein's shadow, Ghislaine Maxwell. Okay, so it's it's Epstein's shadow, Ghislaine Maxwell. <laughs> that's a documentary. It's on Peacock here in the United States. It's on Sky News in the UK. Anybody listening to this in Europe, I don't know, maybe use a VPN to get to one of those places to watch this thing. The article is called Sons you're, of Anarchy. You're global. You are global and you are bad. There are people that watch this. There are people that listen to this in the UK, certainly, in Ireland, in Sweden, in Greece. I don't know. You know? Hi, guys. You're international. I know. I'm, I'm an international man of mystery. It's amazing. The article is called Sons of Anarchy. It's in Airmail Weekly. It, it really is a must read because I think you do kind of concisely explain what happened and it is horrifying and again it, it's this is an isolated thing this is something that easily could have been much worse yeah. and i think we keep saying that hey the insurrection was also easily could have been much worse as horrible as it was you know we don't want this stuff to keep escalating we want to nip it in the bud we want the we want the tide to turn and the trend to go uh in the other direction so uh nina where can we find you www.ninaburley.com my website and I have books. I have uh, written a number of books, and the most recent one is called Virus. I'm updating it for uh, paperback, and I'm updating it with new, you know, the new developments related to um, these misinformation campaigns that have been monetized, like the frontline doctors and Jerome Corsi's involvement in, you know, in it. I don't know if you're familiar with all of this stuff, but it's maybe another show. It's it's fascinating, and I've been talking to the select subcommittee on coronavirus um or on, and, and though and that's james clyburn's uh committee and I've, I've had a lot of interaction with them and i think they're doing great work and we should pay more attention to the work they're doing because look seven hundred forty-seven thousand americans and counting died and the chief doctor of the trump administration deborah burks is on the record now saying after a hundred thousand we didn't have to lose people it absolutely has to do with this deliberate deliberate not not accidental chaos deliberate vulture capitalism ideology anti-government ideology anti-expertise 
and the and inability for the very, very, the experts in the US, very, very prepared, pandemic preparedness um, organizations, networks, the inability of these people to pick up the phone and know who to talk to at the White House because they didn't have scientists at the White House who would get up next to this president who was all he cared about was getting reelected and making sure the numbers stayed low. Having a scientist up there telling the American people in those early crucial months, here's what's going on and here's what you got to do. You know, and they didn't have that. A, a, a pro-science administration like the one we have now would have handled it much differently. And there needs to be accountability. There needs to be accountability for the profiteering, the steering of contracts, the meddling in scientific data, the muzzling of scientists. This is all coming out of the select subcommittee's interviews with people. You know, they're about to talk to Redfield again, but a lot of us want to forget. We want to turn away from this because it wasn't very much fun, but we have to remember what happened because these people, if they got back into power, would do exactly the same thing in terms of science and expertise and you know, um, mustering the power of the U.S. government to protect American people as opposed to using your power to show how private industry can do a better job when in fact it couldn't. Now, they did produce the vaccines and that was a good thing. But the problem is <laughs> the vaccines are great, but now you've got the very people who were the, the supporters of the very people who were behind putting the money up for it saying, don't take it, might mess your DNA up. You know, there might be a chip. That's the Republican Party line, Greg, it, because they need the numbers high. Now they need the numbers high. It's, the whole, it's, it's strategic and it's absolutely malicious. The whole thing is awful. And we've talked about this before, and I've talked about this many times. Trump and Mike Pence was the head of the White House coronavirus ta the task force. He was in charge of it nominally. I don't know what he actually did, but he was in charge of it. And and Jared Kushner, my God, that guy has blood on his hands. And if those three in particular are not called to account and pay for this, I you know we're just lost as a country. If we can agree on one thing, it's that the people who who brought the pandemic here and killed all of us, maybe we should you know maybe they should face some consequences. And if they don't, I, I, I don't even know what to say anymore if they don't, but you know, but I don't, maybe but there's I a memo he, floating around the DOJ that Merrick Garland can read about it and it'll inspire yeah, him to get off his ass. Yeah. And maybe no, we can have like a won't. special counsel. You know, Glenn, Glenn Kirshner this week, looking at the same stuff that I've been writing about from the subcommittee, new material came out about the muzzling of the scientists at the CDC. And he's, he's got this YouTube talk up, um, which he, lays out the reasons why he thinks the DC prosecutors, DC prosecutor can bring charges of involuntary manslaughter against Donald Trump. Now, I talked to lawyers who are close to this, um, these investigations, and they're like, that's a nice idea, but you know, it's no dice. There isn't going to be that kind of accountability. It's ridiculous. People profited off this shit. And there's no way if someone was profiting, Kushner and Trump profited. There is no right. reality in which some people profited and those two motherfuckers did not. So no, that's they, just they, they certainly did profit. Um, their friends profited. Mm -hmm. Their friends profited. Yeah, it's disgusting. It's a dis I sound like Trump. It's disgusting. It's a disgrace. But it is. It's, it's a disgrace. It's disgusting. 
one day, Nina, we should cut. We should have a podcast where we just talk about literature and novels and and movies. And I'd stuff. love so we that. Don't, we don't have to talk about all these horrible, horrible people that we always. I'd love that. About. Let's just do it. Let's just do an English major fireside chat this winter, and we can read our we can read poet read our favorite poems and discuss them and have people call in and read theirs. I think and, that's a great. I think that's a great idea. I think we'll do that for next time. I, and you're the one. You're the man to do it. <laughs> I'm excited. This is a good idea because um, we want to end it somewhat uplifting. Nina Burley. Make English majors listened to again. <laughs> make English majors listen to again. Blah, 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 blah. We can come up with something better. We're English majors, damn it. Uh, <laughs> Nina Burley, thanks so much for taking the time. Great to talk to you as always. Yes, likewise. Take care. Thanks, Greg.